Lifestyle matters. It's more than money. I'm Leanna Wachniak in for Faisal Karmali here with Dave Popovich. Hello, hey. Leanna. Nice to see you. Well, thanks for sitting in. I appreciate it. No problem. Uh, I'd also say you've done a very, very good job of covering markets uh, this week uh, in for Faisal. And, um, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. But we've got an interesting show lined up for everybody today. Fixed income was a pretty scary thing last year, right? Interest rates skyrocketed. Uh, way more than what was expected at the beginning of the year. Bond markets were caught mm -hmm. off guard. Uh, and, and it didn't, bond markets didn't provide the diversifier that mm -hmm. they have traditionally done in a balanced portfolio last year. And there's still a lot of apprehension about that. So we're going to bring on um, uh, a gentleman who's uh, very tenured in the global bond market. Mm -hmm. uh, and he's with a company that is one of the biggest bond managers in the entire world to try to get a sense what opportunity or risk mm -hmm. bonds uh, present this year. So mm -hmm. you want to stick around for that. Now, as I said, you did a great job of covering markets this week. Um, let's start with a little chat around that. What um, what sort of caught your attention this week? Well, thank you. The, the best word, I think, for this week has been mixed. It has been like the weather we have seen this week. We yeah. went from double digits to <laughs> snow. Same thing on the market side. We have seen everything from better than expected earnings, you know, a lot of the U.S. banks reported better than expected earnings, to some economic data, good news story on the U.S. side, a little bit of softening, maybe a little bit less tightness in the labor market. Canadian side of the border, we saw more economic news. We saw the CPI number come out at 4.3% for March. That shows inflation slowing, but really just a mixed bag and the market flat, slightly down, to try and digest all of that news all at the same time. Yeah, I, I had the opportunity to fill in for you. I think it was Tuesday afternoon. You had an important meeting. Um, and, you know, my comment was was similar, but that was early in the week. And it mm -hmm. sure felt like the week was setting up to be a bit of a, a wait and see, mm -hmm. right? M mixed is your word. The, the wait and see markets aren't quite sure, given all this data that's coming in. Is the Fed close to ending its rate hiking mm -hmm. cycle? Well, we have to wait and see. Mm -hmm. Is interest rate, uh, sorry, are inflation uh, rates coming down? Well, yes, but we want to wait and see a little bit more, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And I could go through a bunch of those things, mm -hmm. but but that kind of how the the it shaped up throughout the course of the week. That was essentially how we ended it. By Friday, we had eighty two percent chance the market's pricing in of that twenty five basis point hike by the Fed, right? When at the beginning of May here, but we're we're now talking about potentially decreasing rates by the end of the year again. Yeah, rate cuts, right? Rate cuts by the end of the year, right. which has been off the table in the commentary, the narrative for the last couple of months. Now it's back on. So again, wait and see. I think you are correct on that front. It's just, it's an interesting time to watch the market process this because there's a bunch more things back in the mix now. There are a lot of question marks. I don't think we really answered anything this week. I think we almost created more questions for ourselves <laughs> as to what's going to happen going forward. So yeah. I think we're going to need a few more definitive data points before we see any sort of direction take shape. So one of the things um, as we were moving into this earnings season, and I don't know if you have enough data to be able to speak to this, so you can, that can certainly be your answer. But I'm curious with the companies that have been reporting, um, What's, their, what's the forward guidance look like? My mm -hmm. sense is that with the uncertainty, forward guidance might reflect that and we don't 
you know, if, if companies don't really give a good sense of their forward guidance, they sort of, we don't know because things mm -hmm. are uncertain, that's going to be really interesting for the markets. But, but I don't know. So mm -hmm. did you get a sense with those reports what forward guidance is? So generally speaking, I would say it's about 50-50 from the companies that we were looking at. So some, these were some of the big headline names. Um, I would say in more of the financial sector, there is less, they're less willing to put a number on the for, forward-looking guidance. Mm -hmm. If you're looking at companies like Procter & Gamble reported on Friday, they're, they have a wide range that they're looking at going forward, uh. but they are expecting to see at least their sales increase, right. their earnings increase as right. well over time. So I think it depends on what sector you're in, whether, how you feel about what the forecast right. looks like. Um, and again, retail, I think, is a lot more, they have a lot more data points and they know what their consumers are doing. They have a better idea than maybe the financial services area because it's so dependent on so many more factors. Yeah, I, I, and I think this, this story is going to play in over the next uh, quarter or, or two, certainly mm -hmm. for this earnings season, right? My, my suspicion is that the companies that have a decent line of sight and can forecast decent uh, earnings and revenue numbers will likely get those forecasts. But those that are a little shakier, I suspect that they're going to use this as an opportunity to maybe not give the guidance that the market would be looking for. Mm -hmm. And that's going to leave some uncertainty mm -hmm. out there. And markets don't like uncertainty. So, you know, we could see volatility increase as a result of that. But mm -hmm. we're early on in earnings season, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. we'll have to wait and see how that plays out. On the economic side, was there any any big stories that caught your attention this week? I mean, we did we did have, again, the Canadian CPI number was yep. sort of the biggest headline piece of that inflation slowing. So while we might not be feeling that yet entirely, one of the big pieces of that is we finally saw food inflation drop below 10%. Right. It's the first time in eight months or something like that that we've been below 10% right. on the food inflation front. So starting to see some of those items break, which is good on, on the from the perspective of a people buying groceries, you know, right. going to the grocery store, spending money on that, but also really starting to see the interest rate policy, the Bank of Canada's policy, start to bite there. That's part of it. We saw housing starts down. We saw some like in the U.S. We saw again softening on the job side. Yeah. So those things are all negative, positive signs. Yeah. So that yeah, that's an interesting point yeah. because the markets are you know on this wait and see too. Mm -hmm. Of course, the, the Fed, Bank of Canada, ECB, all, all the big central banks raising rates in an effort to slow the economy. Mm -hmm. And of course, we are starting to see some of that data show up now. And it's fascinating to watch the markets um, interpret that. Um, so knowing that it's coming, really, the, the debate, I think, over the next couple of quarters will be around recession, mm -hmm. right? Um, 60, 65% chance of recession sort of being baked in right now, I would say, in in North America, so it's not a foregone conclusion. We don't have the Bank of Canada forecasting, um, I shouldn't say that. Mm -hmm. uh, what they're forecasting is growth this year, although modest, and they are, uh, even the Fed is forecasting growth, but they're quick to say, listen, it could be just as easily mm -hmm. a mild recession, mm -hmm. right? So I think that an important set of data is going to be, does the economy and the economic data come in when it comes in, is it below or weaker than consensus estimate and that would mm -hmm. indicate a more rapid slowing in the economy mm -hmm. than is expected mm -hmm. and so I, I think that the negative news that is the slowing 
will be accepted as positive so long as it's not more negative than we expected more negative, to be. That's yes. right, than yeah. it's expected yeah. to be. And that will be a bit of a weird period for uh, for investors to mm -hmm. try to digest if that mm -hmm. data is is a good news story or a bad news story. Um, yeah. And I would say that's that's probably what's contributed to a lot of the uncertainty that we've seen this week, yeah. because we have seen some of those numbers slow faster than anticipated. Right. So the market trying to come to grips with, is this a good news that we're seeing it slow more quickly than we thought it would be? Right. Or is this now we're seeing a red flag or this is danger for yeah. potential mild recession? Yeah. Welcome to the next couple of quarters, mm -hmm. right? That's what it's going to be. Uh, you know, Leanna, last year was a difficult year for bondholders, mm -hmm. right? With the rapid rise in interest rates for the first time in a very long time, mm -hmm. we saw U.S. Treasury markets down north of 10% at the same time, where you had uh, U.S. equity markets down by 10% or more. Doesn't happen very often, but it spooked investors a little bit, didn't it? Is, you know, our bonds uh, an asset class. Now, we have moved into a different environment now with, with interest rates higher, and so I think we We've got to get a take on on where bond markets are and what bond mark uh, sorry what bond investors can expect in this mm -hmm. market. Yes. So we've got a great guest uh, joining us today, uh, Tony Crescenzi, who is the executive vice president, market strategist, and generalist portfolio manager at Pimco. Uh, Tony, first of all, thank you very much. We've been trying to get you for a while. I know it's been difficult getting our calendars together, but we love having you here. So thanks taking uh, for taking some time with us. So let's maybe just uh, give you an opportunity to, to, to start. You heard my, my little setup there and obviously, you know, some problems last year. And it, on a retail level, it really confused and spooked investors because we haven't seen that, obviously, in a very, very, very long time. And in most investing careers, haven't seen that. Tell me a little bit about when we, when we entered this year, what was the setup in the, in the bond markets um, to begin the year? And then we'll talk a little bit about where we are now and what you see in the future. Well, I've been traveling uh, literally around the world, talking to clients, and it still seem to be, including Washington this past week, they still seem to be apprehensive about the fixed income arena. Uh, but we want to uh, dispel the pessimism that exists regarding fixed income, uh, because the setup, as you mentioned, it was, uh, looked pretty good, it looked pretty good to start the year, uh, with the main uh, premise being that interest rate volatility in 2023 seemed, and, and so far is it's the case, likely to be far lower than the interest rate volatility seen in 2022 for a simple reason. Uh, in 2022, investors expected the Federal Reserve, as one example of central bank expectation, uh, for, to end the year with a 1% policy rate. Of course, uh, the markets missed that by about mm -hmm. four points. Now, this year, uh, the <laughs> setup has been markets expecting a roughly a 5 percent policy rate, call it five and a quarter. If markets are wrong and it is higher, our view, based on many things we might get into, uh, is it won't be much higher than that, if at all. And so the forecast miss, is the point, is likely to be a, a substantially smaller this year with respect to what investors think central banks will do. And that last year, to, to add to that, was simply a reversal of the 2010s movement in interest rates globally uh, that followed the global financial crisis, including um, the reversal of $19 trillion of negative yield, yielding bonds uh, into positive territory. It was a one-time event, in our view, an anomaly that investors won't expect for um, forget for a generation, which is why the idea of negative interest rates probably is out the window, but more stable interest rate climate is probably upon us now. Okay, so we set up this year, Leanna, with um 
with, I think, a probably a more realistic notion of where rates could be. And again, nobody knows where they're going to end, as Tony said, but it is unlikely we're going to, you know, the bond market will be so, uh, so wrong in terms of, of, of where these things uh, ends up. So what does that mean from a, um, Tony, from a, um, an investment perspective, um, you know, with, with, Central banks led by the Fed getting very close to, to pausing and, you know, Bank of Canada likely on remaining on conditional pause here. Uh, maybe you could just speak to what that, um, you know, what that's going to mean, what investors should be looking for there um, with respect to their fixed income portfolios. Yeah, and I, I think uh, the one uh, the way we put it thematically is that uh, interest rates, yields look attractive relative to three uh, metrics. Uh, one, history, I'll tell you about that in a second. Second, inflation expectations, and third, volatility. Now on the history part, looking at the Bloomberg aggregate, which combines US treasuries, uh, mortgages, corporate bonds, basically the bond universe in a market-weighted fashion, uh, the yield today is 4.5%. Uh, that looks favorable to us. And by the way, it's up from a low of near 1%. Relative to history, uh, looking at the last decade, it's two percentage points higher. Relative to the last 20 years, it's about a percentage point higher. And go further back, even if I went 40 years back, it's not that far beneath the 40-year average, which includes a period of high interest rates. And so it's very good looking relative to history. Secondly, and these other metrics matter more, an investor could say, especially given what happened in 2022, on expected inflation. Uh, investors were certainly very worried about inflation in 2022, still are worried, but not as much. The market participants seem to be thinking the inflation rate in the United States uh, will fall below 3% at some point. You can see this in inflation-protected securities and numerous other gauges. It does look like uh, the markets are confident that the inflation rate will be below 3 So with a 4.5% yielding uh, market, and this is before any alpha that managers can, like PIMCO and others, can generate, looks pretty good on that basis. Second, thirdly, um, relative to volatility, I'm also sub, uh, subjective, perhaps, this analysis, but typical bond market volatility for this index that I mentioned, the Bloomberg aggregate, it's about 5 to 6%. So if a yield uh, return is close to 5%, it's a pretty good um, relationship compared to the equity market where returns are expected to be mid-single digits or so, and volatility typically is in the teens, the value proposition looks good to us. And, and final, final note, uh, remember always that the starting yield is the major determinant of future returns. And so if we're starting near 5% or so in the various types of bonds, uh, it looks like that's what investors will get. And it looks pretty attractive in the ways I said. Now, Tony, uh, we have a couple minutes left for this segment, but I would love to know where you see the most opportunity. You have kind of the global universe of bonds open to you. You've mentioned that you see some opportunity in yields. Where do you see the most attractive areas of globally right now? Thanks, Diana. I would start with the areas we'd be careful about, which is the low-grade areas, high yield, for example, loan securities. Anything below investment grade should be uh, one should be very careful about and uh, be careful about the scaling there. Wouldn't avoid them completely, but um, it depends on an investor's uh, 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 stomach for volatility, you could say, and ability to withstand volatility. But the areas we like include agency mortgage-backed securities, which are deteriorating lately because of sales by the 
FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, uh, related to the recent bank stress. And so these yields are moving close to their peaks again relative to Treasury yields. And that peak uh, was last reached in 2008. So we're on par with that, close to it, without a housing crisis. So those securities um, in reasonable scaling look good to us to overweight. Uh, secondly, uh, so-called structured products. Imagine, uh, if you will, an asset-backed security uh, that's backed by credit card loans or car loans or perhaps student loans uh, and also credit support. Uh, the yields could be uh, um, also in the fives, even towards 6% on those. And so they are attractive to us. We're also interested in financial companies, the big six, as they're called in the U.S., uh, the yields are attractive between 150 and 200 basis points over treasuries. And these banks to us look good. And you want to be in high up in the so-called capital structure, uh, first in line, in other words, in, in the event of a, a problem. So this is the main areas in terms of investments, but also um, a diversified portfolio globally could include some a smidge of emerging markets and many, many nations where yields look attractive because of high central bank rates. But uh, I should say a final, final note is to think about short-term investments and strategies, um, perhaps think beyond money market funds, which have a few days of maturity, think beyond a little bit further, reach for a little more yield, a little bit more in terms of maturity, and uh, lots of good things to do in these um, dynamic, uh, if you will, uh, short-term strategy. You mentioned the big six banks. Now, the banks have been on everybody's mind in the United States here recently with some of these um, high-profile um, failures. So why don't, uh, why don't you chime in, if you can, and give us your take on, uh, through your working career, what sort of risk this represents to investors in fixed income and interest rates? Thank you, Dave. Uh, in fact, I marked my 40th year working on Wall Street uh, in March. Uh, Odds, I believe, but I uh, started in 1983 and um, worked at Lehman Brothers in the World Trade Center. Uh, that's uh, a lot of big highlights. And um, one of those uh, highlights is this banking industry issue that seems to plague capital markets now and then. I read a book not too long ago about the panic of 1907. There always seems to be some reason that people line up outside of a bank or perhaps at their computers these days to move money out of a bank and cause problems. Uh, and looking at the uh, story uh, of the past 40 years um, and, and what the story tells us is to maintain a long-term orientation when investing, to stay invested, not to worry too much about market timing, which is difficult for any investor. But 1,600 banks failed from 1983 to 2000, according to the FDIC another 600 banks since then, 2,200 banks. But what has happened in the equity market during that period, which is a proxy for thinking about other sorts of investments? Well, the Dow Jones Industrial Average is up 30 times since then. The S&P 500, 25 times. I could point to lots of other types of stress that could be geopolitical, et cetera. So the important thing for an investor to think about, first and foremost, is to maintain a long-term orientation. Now, of course, every year is different. and. Uh, we have to think whether we've reached what's called a Minsky moment. A Minsky moment's a period of chaos. Doesn't seem like it because we never reach what's called a period of Knightian uncertainty. Knightian for Frank Knight, 1921, book on risk, profit, and uncertainty. Knightian uncertainty is so-called radical uncertainty. It seems investors have a pretty good grasp 
on the bank's story that smaller banks have these issues with respect to matching their deposit rate, deposits and their liabilities with their assets in terms of the average maturity. Uh, that's what causes problems. Mm-hmm. And, and But the final point is that uh, there's also an understanding that the post-GFC world includes stress testing of big banks. And when investors think about whether big banks might be subjected to stress, they say no, and you see money flocked to uh, these big banks in the time of stress, and they see the stress test results are pretty extraordinary and to the positive. So probably not uh, a great worry. Always do have to worry about these uh, psychological issues, but um, maintain the long-term orientation, and I think investors will fare well. So while we're on the topic of risks and things to worry about, can you maybe tell us a little bit more about your process, the risk factors that you look at and consider as you go through in your investing process? Surely, Anna. And uh, recall in the last segment, we talked about uh, uh, specific bonds we might like for this climate, including agency mortgage-backed securities, certain short-term investments, certain housing-related investments, structured products. Those are uh, instruments. They're assets. But what about risk factors? What is a risk factor approach? It's a uh, way to think about it is to um, consider that certain bonds have equity-like properties. Certain equities have bond-like properties. They, they, there's a correlation. So one has to be thinking about how much, uh, for example, how much equity risk is in my bond portfolio. And in a high-yield bond, for example, there tends to be more equity risk than there would be, of course, in a U.S. Treasury, where an investor mm-hmm. is expected to remain whole. So these days, in looking at the big five, as we call them, duration yield curve, credit, FX, and option selling strategies, we'd say on duration, we want to have a little more duration, interest rate sensitivity in portfolios uh, than we would have said months ago because we think the Federal Reserve is close to the end of its rate hike process. And uh, it may be that there's a recession around the corner or it could be even upon us now. And that therefore, interest rates may decline. And we want the ability of total return, meaning some capital gains. So having a, a if prices rise and yields fall. So it's so thinking about the risk factor side of it, we want a little more duration, a little more yield curve, meaning lean a little bit more into short and intermediate maturities than longer term maturities. Not uh, we are overweight credit, but very careful about the type of credit we have because in a recession there could be stress among credit instruments, and so we want to be careful about where we are in the capital structure, in terms of seniority, et cetera, et cetera. Lots to do there. And on the FX side, uh, just to add the final point, is we'd be careful about scaling there too because it's a period of uncertainty. And um, so if uh, there's another jump in interest rates or a big recession, the beta correlation on those assets is high and you could get hurt. So we want to be careful about scaling. Uh, in those assets, but we do want them as diversifiers. So, Tony, I, I don't want to put you um, too much on the spot here, but I do want to talk a little bit about the base case scenario that, that you guys see playing out. And there's a bunch of assumptions baked into that, like where the Fed is going to stop, where, you know, when they're cutting next, and so on and so forth. I get that. But given, given what you see today, uh, give us a sense, or retail investors, a sense of where we see the fixed income bond markets going over the next 12, 24, 36 months. Thanks, Dave. And um, it does seem that the near-term view is certainly easier to, to um, support than the longer-term view. I mean, but it does seem to us that the Federal Reserve is 
about to complete its rate hike cycle, at least for now, with one last quarter point hike at the start of May, and then it will stop to assess conditions. Uh, the, one of the main reasons relates to uh, the recent banking story. Banks are a big part of the economic picture. Smaller banks, which we feel will be lending at a slower pace from here, and there's some data evidencing that lately, they account for about half of commercial um, of uh, mortgage loans. They account for about half of loans to consumers, and therefore, if they slow their lending to those entities, then it should affect the economy uh, negatively. And then there's a psychological impact that people think that's going to happen and start paring back as well. Uh, but there's also uh, two other things I'll mention. One relates to this idea of transmissions. How does monetary policy transmit into the economy? Uh, there's five channels, stock prices. Think of the NASDAQ down 25% from the peak, the S&P down 15%. Stock prices, bond yields way up. Credit spreads wider, so it makes it more expensive for businesses to borrow money. Uh, fourth, bank lending standards, which had been tightening before the bank story erupted in March, and is a big influence. And then finally, the U.S. dollar, which is stronger from uh, last year, although weaker lately. So all those channels are working along with fiscal policy to slow the economy uh, and therefore bring about um, a lower inflation rate. Final note on that. So think about the slowing in the economy affecting wages. They're running at 4.2% year over year in the United States. How do you, well, how does that matter to the inflation picture? Subtract productivity, simple way of looking at the cost of doing business. And you get a, a, a rate under 3%, which just seems to be where the inflation rate is headed. So second way to think about the, whether the Fed's done is, this, I'll go quick on this, the proxy Fed funds rate. San Francisco Fed has a gauge of this. Uh, it indicates that the, the Fed funds rate is effectively, and I'll explain why, around 6.5%, not the 5%-ish that the Fed has um, raised the policy rate to. The proxy Fed funds rate takes into account the balance sheet actions and the powerful words of the Fed and, and, and other central banks. There's some value to that. I mean, when the Fed says, we're going to keep raising rates, it hurt the markets last year. And it has the effect of raising rates. Secondly, the mortgage-backed securities had widened in yield. Mortgage rates shot up to 7% in the United States, not just because the Fed raised rates, but because it was reducing its holdings of mortgage-backed securities. That 200 basis point spread to treasuries matched the GFC and was up from a typical 75 basis point. So there's some value to that. So if the funds rate is effectively at 65 inflation is expected to be 25 that's a four-point real interest rate. The Volcker, Paul Volcker, the legendary Fed chair, 1979 to 83, took it to 5%, that real funds rate, meaning the, take the policy rate minus inflation. That was enough to get the job done. In the 60s, another nagging problem took a three-point real rate to fix it there. So here it's near four. So that looks good to us in the context of the financial conditions tightening and the fiscal authorities tightening. So, so that means a much better story. And... Um, uh, Everything should be fine, <laughs> we would hope. We like it. Yeah, we, everything will be fine. We'll leave it. We have to leave it there, Tony. We're sorry, we've run out of time, but I think that's a perfect spot to leave it on for, for fixed income investors. Listen, I want to thank you very much for taking some time uh, with us today. We appreciate it. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Leanna. Um, interesting conversation about the markets and, and, and then in, you know, in depth in terms of the bond markets and whatnot. 
But listen, we're at the uh, we're at the tail end of what most people think of as tax season, right? Mm -hmm. uh, most people will have their uh, stuff in by the end of this month. But I want to throw a little um, um, a little wrench into it here and, and say that tax season never starts and tax season never ends. You're going to disappoint a lot of people by saying that. Yeah, and me included. Trust me, tax season, <laughs> taxes are it just it's it's constant, right? Now, but I say that, Leanna, and you and I joke around. We're joking around about this um, off air, but filing your taxes is just the act of filing your taxes. Mm. But uh, managing tax from a strategic or a tactical purpose is something that happens all year round, all the time. Mm -hmm. And if you're only thinking about it in April, the week before you file your taxes, you're losing out on opportunities. Yeah, say. yeah. So let's um, let's talk a little bit about this idea of tax um, and try to give people an idea, um, some framework to, to, to think about it when we say tactics and strategy. So uh, in Canada... Okay, uh, as Canadians, we pay taxes basically at three points in time. What are those? When you make money, when you take money, and when you pass away. Right. So when you make money, you know, you think about your employment income. Got it. Um, but if you've got rental income and so on and so forth coming in, okay, that's, that's receiving income. Mm -hmm. Taking money is things like taking out of a registered account, uh, perhaps taking money out of a corporation in the way that you do that. Right, and then there's this idea of when you pass away in Canada, we don't have a, we don't have an estate. Yeah, tax. there's no estate tax, but there are still taxes associated right. with your estate. Right, because yeah. there's a deemed disposition when you pass, uh, and it and it triggers various kinds of taxes depending on the assets that you own. Okay, so we know that there's sort of these three points in time. Um, in you know, in a seminar that we run, we talk about our 3D tax mm -hmm. strategy. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, three D's, I'll give you the thunder here. <laughs> Deduct, divide, and defer. Right. And so when you think about this idea that there's three points in time mm -hmm. and we've got these three D's, when you're, when you're thinking about uh, your situation, you should be thinking about applying the deduct, divide, and defer at each of those moments in time mm -hmm. when you're going to pay tax to try to reduce the overall tax burden, not just on an individual basis, but on a family basis. Now, the reality is that there are some things that you do tactically, and it means it might happen um, once on an annual basis. Mm -hmm. And there are other things that you can set up strategically that will benefit the family over years or perhaps decades, mm -hmm. right? So that's the difference between the, the, the uh, strategy and the tactics. And then I, and then I add to it, there's, there's no one size that fits all. That's right, yes. Because all families are different, mm -hmm. right? We've all accumulated different assets through our lifetime. You've got different sources of cash flow. You've got different family dynamics and things you're trying to accomplish. And all of that has an impact on, uh, on the strategy itself. So, oh, and I'll add one more thing. Um, whether you're single or a couple, mm -hmm. right? That even adds to the complexity of your tax planning. It, it makes and tax a big study. difference, surprisingly. It yeah. does, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. A single person doesn't have all the opportunity that a couple to, does. Yeah, that divide portion right. is really not there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So okay. So given all of, uh, all that complexity, we got this we got this model. I was talking a little bit about um, about this on CTV recently, and uh, you know, trying to help people get a sense of we got it. We got to move away from the this notion of it's the end. It's tax season right now. It's mm -hmm. March and April is tax season. It's not right. Good tax planning. A good retirement plan uh, should involve both the tactics and the strategy for, for taxes all year round. Because the fact of the matter is, nobody lives on uh, pre-tax income, mm -hmm. right? 
We all live on after-tax income, and the more you can, within the rules, I'm mm -hmm. not saying do anything crazy, mm -hmm. right? But within the rules, minimize the amount you have to send, in this case, to Edmonton and to Ottawa, means that we have more in our genes to spend and enjoy. Well, we talk about the fact that it's, it is within the framework of the tax system. Right. You have, you can guarantee yourself that amount of money just by not paying it in taxes, right. right? It's not, you don't have to invest it in the stock market, it won't go up and down. The government takes a percentage. Right. There are things you can do to change what that is. So. Yeah. And it's, it, it, for most Canadian families, quite frankly, in retirement, tax will be the single biggest expense line item mm -hmm. that they face. So let's, let's, let's talk a little bit about that. Now, um, Twenty twenty one, as an example, um, uh, for us was a was a, uh, a very we had a very good three years. We did some uh, changes to portfolios, and it triggered some capital gains. Okay, now capital gains, interestingly, um, the strategy even around tax loss selling or tax gain selling is not an annual thing. Mm -hmm. So I use that example. In twenty twenty one, we triggered capital gains. People had to pay tax on capital gains, but you have to remember on a gain basis, we can carry losses back three years. Right. So so moving forward, if you run into a year like a 2022, you can harvest some losses at the end of the year and you can go carry it back in time to recapture some of that tax money. Mm -hmm. And so I think people have to remember that even tactically, when you're doing things like tax loss selling or tax gain selling, depending on what you're trying to accomplish, it's not it's not an annual event. Yeah, it's not an isolated period of time. Every year is not in its own box. It's not an isolated right. year. And then you can never go back to it. Right. And then there's other things that are longer term. Um, so, you know, we talk about transitioning or moving assets, um, uh, non-registered taxable assets from one spouse to another, okay, from a high income spouse to a lower income spouse. There are ways to do that properly, right, mm -hmm. to make sure that you don't run afoul of uh, any attribution tax law, uh, tax rules. There are things like family trusts that you can use depending mm -hmm. on your situation. Now, if you're doing a a spousal or prescribed rate loan or say a, a trust, those are clearly things you're putting in place for years, multiple years, mm -hmm. or even decades to try to benefit the overall um, uh, uh, tax impact to the family itself. What about insurance, right? Insurance is an asset class that people, um, you know, they, they cringe, they, mm -hmm. you, you know, your spine locks mm -hmm. up when you hear that word because, you know, we all buy insurance, um, when we're, you know, when, when we're in our youth to try to protect ourselves from, you know, some catastrophic event. And mm -hmm. it ends up as an expense. But insurance as you move later into life or you're a corporate business owner uh, can be a very effective tax planning tool. And there's lots of strategies mm -hmm. on, on how to use that. So, so the point that I think I want to make, and I'll get your opinion on this, is people need to be um, very uh, both forward thinking and dynamic when they're thinking about their situation and their tax strategy. And it's often not just one professional, right? You do need a quarterback. Mm -hmm. Who do we think that quarterback has to be? Well, I mean, people have a choice. And a lot of people choose to take it on themselves and right. be the go-between between right. their financial professionals, accountants, and so on. But you can also have your financial professional, your advisor, wealth advisor, be that quarterback for you and make sure that they're communicating with your accountant to make sure that the filings are in line with the overall tax strategy right. and that everything lines up together. Yeah. yeah, you may need a professional team in order to execute mm -hmm. on, depending on the complexity of your situation, but a quarterback should be somebody that's looking across all platforms, all of your wealth, mm -hmm. to make sure that all of these different options are being reviewed. 
Okay, so there you have it. Sorry, tax season's not over. It didn't start. It didn't end. <laughs> Something we have to talk about <laughs> forever and a day. Let's talk about that because that'll be an important part of our conversation at our upcoming seminar. For sure, taxes are important in retirement, and that is something at our next seminar on Tuesday, April 25th. That's next Tuesday, live in person at 7 p.m. at the Carriage House Inn in Calgary. Please register to join us. You can register at morethanmoneyradio.com. Okay, thanks for joining us for another edition of More Than Money on QR Calgary. We look forward to chatting with you next week. David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodgundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada.